You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right. Hey, this is Jacob with the uh, Daniel three podcast. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Um, I have uh, Gregory here, Gregory. Uh, uh, and I don't know how your last last name is pronounced. Is that boss or boss or. Yep. Rhymes with house. Okay. Cause I was, I was hoping it was boss. Cause then I was going to call you the boss all night, but that's okay. We'll we'll come up with some house related puns, but <laughs> um, yeah. So I have uh, Gregory here. I, um, Met Gregory on Facebook. We're both part of uh, uh, the Reformed Libertarian, Reformed Anarchist uh, Facebook pages, um, which I think he is. You're the admin of at least one, if not both of those. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I was actually, and I was referred to you by a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, Craig Hargis, who you did his podcast on the bad, uh, the bad Roman. Um, yeah, little little while back, yet, but. Yeah. Hasn't aired yet. No, no. I actually got on his case about that. I was talking to him today, but he's, he just had, he's in the middle of a move and he's, he, he recorded a bunch of episodes in advance so he can release them while he's doing all that. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was excited to, he, he, he reached out to me because he knows I'm, uh, a reformed Christian or a Calvinist. And so he, after the, uh, the interview he did with you, he messaged me and said, I just interviewed a Calvinist. <laughs> So, which is, which is funny. I mean, it's, it, I still am weirded out sometimes when people refer to me as a Calvinist because it's still a relatively new thing for me personally. Um, I know it's not so much for you, but uh, 
start out with, I just wanted to ask a little bit about you because I don't know too much. Um, you know, what do you do and what's your background and, uh, um, you know, what, what motivates you and, uh, you know, let's just, you know, start there. Sure. Um, well, uh, most recently, uh, since the end of 2010, I had been um, for about uh, eight years an English teacher, mostly freelancing uh, overseas. I uh, started out in Cambodia, although I had taught English before, so it's been a little bit of an on and off thing throughout the years. But um, yeah, I was in Cambodia for just under a year. And then I went to Beijing, China. So I was in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. I went to Beijing, China. And then uh, I was in Budapest, Hungary for four years. So Beijing was about three years and then four in uh, Hungary. And then in uh, 2018, I returned to the States. Uh, I'm enrolled again in uh, graduate school. I had initially uh, started a program in 2005 and in philosophy and uh, I did my undergrad in philosophy. <clears throat> anyway, I kind of pooped out on my thesis the uh, first time around and so I'm trying to finish that up again. I was initially enrolled at the Free University in Amsterdam, which is a historically uh, reformed university. And uh, the program I was um, enrolled in has since uh, become defunct, but uh, the program I'm enrolled in now is in South Africa at a university called Northwest University. That's the name of one of their provinces and uh, not, not far outside of Johannesburg. And, um, and they are also historically reformed. And so I was able to continue my uh, thesis idea uh, through that school. So that's what I do. <laughs> I, uh, I, I tend to uh, work w while I'm in school, I tend to work various odd jobs, but uh, I'm waiting tables at the moment. So that's working out. Um, okay, cool. Basically, I am a uh, student of philosophy, sometimes teacher, <laughs> and ho hopefully, uh, you know, once in future, uh, teacher of uh, philosophy. We'll see how it goes. That's got to be an interesting field to try to get into nowadays, uh, philosophy. I feel like people with a Christian background trying to enter that world and then to teach at, you know, a university, unless it's a Christian university, I'd imagine there might be a little bit of uh, at least awkwardness, if not perhaps some barrier to entry. But um, I... I managed to avoid, I didn't go to college, but I had a lot of friends that did. So I'm aware of kind of a little bit secondhand of the, the culture and in, in the yeah. college campuses around, around the, around the country. 
Um, so you were raised in the Reformed faith, and now you're this weird, radical anarchist. <laughs> um, no, I, I just love when people call uh, anarchism and they go around so they're they're radicals going around radicalizing people. I'm just like we just want people to not hurt each other. I don't know why that's so radical, but uh, what was your evolution? Political, uh, politically, I mean, were you raised conservative, liberal, any political leaning at all? And then, uh, you know, what what was kind of your introduction to uh, anarchism or voluntarism? Yeah, I'd say my household was uh, my parents basically were um, fairly libertarian leaning. Um, and uh when i you know i had mentioned this on uh, craig's uh, podcast uh it was 92 that was the i was 19 so it was the first uh presidential election i was eligible to vote in and uh i became a constitutionalist so there was a party at the time called the u.s taxpayers party uh, one of the leaders in that party and was the presidential candidate uh, was a fellow named Howard Phillips. And uh, I met him and spoke with him quite a bit. And uh, he convinced me of constitutionalism. And uh, so I was a, I was a soft uh, libertarian in a way Uh you know, I, I think the perspective might be described as uh, the classical liberal uh, tradition. And so um, before that, I was already, I would say, a classical liberal in a way with a little bit more traditional conservatism uh, built in there. I was sort of uh, politically conscious through the writings of uh, Francis Schaeffer. I had read him in high school, and um, he, he was also instrumental. His writings were also instrumental in interesting me in philosophy. And uh, I would say political philosophy then was kind of a side interest all along. I didn't uh, go into political science or political philosophy directly, um, but um, I had some other philosophical focuses, foci. <laughs> but um, yeah, so until, hmm, well, right around the time that I was in grad school, uh, 2005 to 2007, besides doing my, uh, starting on my master's at that time, I began an independent study in economics. And so it was encountering Rothbard, although I was semi-familiar with him uh, before, I, uh, I probably, it wasn't the first thing I read, but I'm sure reading for New Liberty was pretty instrumental. Um, a series 
of lectures by a philosophy professor named uh, Roderick Long. That's what really did it, I think, pushed me over the edge um, into what we referred to as libertarian anarchism. He had basically uh, set up John Locke's perspective, sort of his argument on the inconveniences of the state of nature, basically why we need a state. And um, he did a Lockean critique of Locke where he showed that Locke's uh, criteria uh, really undermined his own position and were answered properly by the um, an understanding of stateless civil governance. So that, I remember the day, uh, uh, 16 October, 2008, and I was converted. <laughs> You're <laughs> the right. Yeah. Political philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> it. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. My, my, uh, uh, political, uh, evolution into anarchism is actually, unless it, uh, unless it one day gets zucked, uh, is actually still on Facebook, uh, archived for anyone who can go and find it to see. But I was in a conversation with uh, about two two uh, two friends of mine who were like personal friends. Like actually, uh, they live in the area, and they were part of this libertarian meetup group that I had been going to for a while. But I didn't realize that they were anarchists. I was still a kind of fresh libertarian. I actually uh, my evolution is weird because I grew up in a constitutional conservative household. My dad called himself a constitutionalist but by the time i was done high school i was pretty left-leaning in the uh uh 2016 election in the primaries i was a de registered democrat and i was uh pulling for bernie and then when uh when that got robbed from him then i reluctantly moved to hillary i wasn't thrilled about her but i kind of bought into the the fear-mongering of <clears throat> the stuff around donald trump not that not that there's not reasons to oppose Donald Trump, but just the reasons that the left were giving were just that, like, he says mean things, which, right, you know, isn't... He's yucky. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I went from Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016 to this year where I didn't vote at all uh, because, because I'm an anarchist now. But it, it was, uh, before I became an anarchist, I was a libertarian, but very loosely... Uh, I, I would I would have probably closely identified with like Ben Shapiro, that kind of uh, and Dave Rubin, those kind of, you know, yeah, kind of classic lib classical liberal is probably a right. better a better word for it. And uh, I had I, I don't even think I'm exaggerating. I think a 300 or 400 comment thread on this post because I, I kept on seeing these memes from anarchists. I didn't know they were anarchists, but libertarian anarchists where they were saying taxation is theft. Um, actually, I remember the, the first meme I saw made me laugh. Um, it was, it was like, we need a Disney princess whose slogan is taxation is theft, um, which was funny. <laughs> and, you know, I just kind of like laughed at it. And, uh, but then later I was thinking taxation is theft. I was like, well, I don't, I don't like taxes. But then I started to go through all the normal, like, but we, we need some taxes. Right. So then I went onto this group and I made a post asking is all taxation theft. And then 
300, 400 comments later over the course of a day, uh, my two friends basically uh, uh, beat me into submission. (laughs) Every argument I gave, they had good answers for and and links to uh, videos and and, and, um, articles to read. And by the end of the day, I was a very reluctant anarchist because I realized was like I, I, I was like the only justifications I have now for not wanting to accept this is that uh, I just don't know how we would get there. I was like, but that's not a rejection of it. That's just a, you know, that's that's gauging. Is it realistic that we'll ever get there? Not so much that it's a legitimate moral philosophy and that it would it would work if we did get there. Right. Um, so, but it was funny up until then, I didn't realize anarchism was a big thing outside of like, I thought it was just crazy, you know, leftist communists throwing Molotov cocktails into, uh, you know, businesses through their windows. Mm-hmm. So I was having a conversation with my friend cause he was like, you know, he was like, well, tell me a tax you think is good. And I was like, well, about sales tax. And he showed how that was wrong. And then, you know, we went like one step after another. And then I, I just asked him, I was like, well, how should we fund these things? And then, you know, probably halfway through the conversation, I said, you know, I guess this all makes sense, but it's just weird because it feels like you're not leaving any room for the state to do anything. And that would be anarchy. He was like, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. You came to the right conclusion. Um, so, that's really funny. All right. That reminds me of two things. Are you familiar with um, Thomas K? Uh, he's bit butter. He did, uh, George ought to help videos. Do you know him? Not off the top of my head, no. Okay, I'll 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 give you a link for the show notes or whatever. And um, he has a great interactive site called uh, "Is Taxation Theft." Oh um, boy! <laughs> it, it probably reproduces the exact kind of conversation you had with your friends, and uh, it's it's good and very helpful for people. What um, is this? Is this like? Um... That oh, I forget the, the guy's name. Was it Sai who has that website for uh, like uh, it, it, it's for for Calvinism? Like if you save yourself or not, I think he has oh. an interactive website like that I, too. You should I, check I, that I out. I've seen that. You, yes, yeah, yeah. It's 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 pretty funny. <laughs> okay, we'll have to post both of those. We yeah, can post them side <laughs> by side and see how they compare. Right. Um, and uh, well, I actually uh, met a guy. I haven't been in touch with him for years, so I'm not quite sure where he stands now. But when I was in college back in the uh, in my undergrad for in, like in the mid '90s, I met a, a libertarian anarchist who was a uh, Rothbard guy, and so I was sort of vaguely familiar uh, with these things, but I had just kind of uh, ruled them out. Um, probably a little too dismissively at the time. I wish I had been more curious. Uh, at the time to understand, uh, um, he, he, of course, he was a little, uh, uh, a peculiar individual personality wise. So maybe that I just chalked it up to his eccentricity or something, but, uh, anyway, so, yeah. So, um, and, and on top of both being anarchists now, uh, we both are, part of what would be broadly called reformed theology, um, which is something that can be tough to define. I, I remember watching just this past week, a conversation where uh, 
you know, people were trying to identify where they fit in as far as like the different denominations. And it was just mm-hmm. like, are, are Lutherans reformed? Yes, no. Some people said yes. Some people said no. It was like so one, one person, uh, my friend Aaron was like, well, Lutherans aren't even Protestant. And I was like, uh, <laughs> it's a weird way to define Protestantism, but I, I saw I saw that conversation. Yeah, yeah. Little, little <laughs> pretty, off the wall. Yeah, apparently that's a thing among uh, Lutherans. They, uh, for some reason, have I, it must be recent are are resistant uh, to the term Protestantism, but that's silly. But anyway. right. But uh, what what would you say? You know, in your opinion, what like Reformed theology is in terms of you know not just a strict definition, but like uh, kind of like what the worldview entails um Uh and like how it's how it's derived what separates it from other traditions in the church well uh yeah it's an interesting way to put it um i think if you want if if someone an unbeliever or not uh or someone who's also a professing christian if they want to know um what is what does it mean to be a reformed Christian, uh, a reformed Protestant Christian. What 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 exactly is that referring to? The uh, confessional statements, and more broadly than maybe exclusively the confessions, we'd say the secondary standards, the uh, doctrinal standards of the reformed churches uh, are really what define that properly. So it's not obviously it's not Calvin's specific theology and it's not any individual theologians uh theology but it is the uh, articles of faith the common confession of faith professed by those who are members of reformed churches and so the uh historical classic uh Reformed confessions, I mean, there were many, but some had more uh, international appeal. Uh, So the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Belgic Confession, and the Second Helvetic Confession, the main ones, uh, and there are many others. And there's uh, a great series of volumes um, by... James Dennison, where he put together like all these confessional documents uh, from the Reformation period, the 16th and 17th centuries, 15 and 1600s. Um, that might be of interest to people who have this kind of uh, historical and theological curiosity to look mm-hmm. for those. We can post a link to those. Um, but <clears throat> to say what that includes, <laughs> uh, similar to the what we call the ecumenical creeds, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and other similar statements, for example, what has come to be known the Athanasian Creed and these kinds of things um, that you know, have these series of statements that is expressing uh, the Christian's faith in 
the teaching of scripture, right? So that's specifically what it is, is uh, our faith is not only personally, it is foremost in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but then uh, with that, his acknowledging his voice and authority in in the bible itself and so it's what it's a matter of uh what the churches uh together confess is the teaching of scripture and there have been traditional ways of sort of organizing that material um and they go through you know you could say topically basically uh so there's you know, understanding of what scripture is as the word of God itself um, an understanding of God and points like his triune nature and uh, Christ's nature as both God and man and so on. Uh, understanding of what salvation is being pretty key what the church is um yeah i know i know a lot of people will like to you know they're everyone when they hear reformed or calvinist they just want to throw tulip at us which right i'm not saying is not a bad way to go about it but um i've always liked the uh reducing it down at least for when people are kind of asking you know for a basic summary, I like going to the the five solas, uh, you know, solio uh, gratia, sola fide, Christus, and you know the the two that I think really distinguish us from maybe other traditions would be the uh, the sola fide, faith alone, and the uh, sol, sola uh, gratia, which is grace alone, and maybe sola scriptura too. But I think there's other denominations that would hold to to hold to that. Um, but I think that. What do you, what do you yeah, think? The solas uh, were f- formulated a- as we know of them today. I, I think probably after the <clears throat> period of the Reformation proper. I'm not up on my exact history of the formulation of them, but uh, I would say those are what define a classical Protestant in general. Okay. So there's a lot by, you know, might go under the title. If, if you're not Eastern Orthodox, if you're not Roman Catholic, you might just say everybody else who's not in some kind of cult as defined by a Christological heresy is just Protestant. But, you know, they're not <laughs> insofar as if they don't hold to the stolas, the five solas. So, yeah, I would say classical Protestantism affirms those things, the, the, those five solas. Um, I guess what I would say is, and I don't agree with you, they, they probably all profess those. I, I have found just in my personal theological journey up until this point, though, that the Reformed tradition, I think, most strongly and consistently brings those out to the point where they're, yeah. they're, pushed, to the, they're, they're pushed to the point where they're universalized and there's not much muddiness or gray area you have to deal with, whereas with other uh, you know, kind of the theology I was raised with and other ones I've looked into, you're kind of left either having to explain a lot of weird things that you're trying, because you're trying to hold on to something, 
or you end up doing what I've encountered from a lot of Lutherans where they just have very, uh, like, like no comment responses to things where it's just like, I don't know. It's a mystery. <laughs> and, and that's like their answer to a lot of things. It's just like, what's your view on this? Like, we don't know. The Bible says this, it's a mystery, which is on one hand, I can applaud people who are humble to say, Hey, I don't know. I don't want to say something false. So I would rather say nothing at all. Um, but, uh, yeah. but I, I, I do think, uh, you know, tulips, a, a, a good, ac- uh, not acronym. Uh, yeah. What's that? It's an acronym. Yeah, an acronym. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a good, it's a good kind of basic way to get into it, but it's just funny that, uh, everyone likes to go to it when I don't, it, my understanding of the history is it's not even, it wasn't an invention of Calvin or anyone else. It was actually the, uh, was it, was it, uh, Jacob Ar- Arminius who, when he kind of, uh, went his separate direction kind of said, well, here's the five things I disagree with on Calvin on and kind of, I thought that was kind of where that, where the tulip came from. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So actually the acronym tulip was also a later invention, but it basically right. refers to the, what we call the canons of Dort, uh, basically, you know, being these affirmation and denials put forward by the Senate of, uh, Dortrecht in, oh gosh, sixteen nineteen. I forget the dates, <laughs> but in any case, uh, there were other synods of at Dort, um, and that was actually an international synod. So I would say that's also definitive of uh, for uh, reformed churches and reformed theology. Even if you don't hold to the three forms of unity, which is uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession, uh, and the Canons of Dort. <clears throat> But, but um, uh, in any case, yes, it was a response to uh, the heretical uh, position of the Arminians uh, and their remonstrance, their protest against uh, reform teaching. And so the Canons of Dort uh, clarify what uh, the reformed churches hold to with regard to those points. And some people say they've received too much emphasis because you have people running around calling themselves Calvinists when that's all they know. And uh, so it lacks the broader context of Reformed theology, and perhaps they're distorting these things. Perhaps some are hyper-Calvinists or something like that. But um, uh, so there, so there's like a, in one way there's an emphasis on TULIP, but then there's also this sort of reaction against it. Um, but, uh, uh, I'm, ha- I'm happy to emphasize it. Uh, I think it's very useful, pedagogically super useful and, uh, helpful at getting at one of the major problems of, um, non-reformed views of salvation. And, uh, so yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm pro tulip. <laughs> yeah, would you say the the simplest way to to uh, explain the differences between reformed and, and Calvinists and and those who are not is basically to get to the heart of it, our views on on salvation and and the the role of of you know the other the other terms that come in are monergism versus synergism, 
um, which, of course, most Protestants would, when you define those terms, would all say that they are monergists, but uh, the the Reformed uh, and the Calvinists would say that uh, if that's what they think they believe, they're inconsistent in it in terms of what they uh, what their their soteriology is. So, and it, it and sometimes it's like I'm it's it's tough because I have a little bit of a mental hurdle in my mind because this this stuff is still relatively new to me, mm-hmm. but it's like I don't want to go around and. I want to go around and, and profess Christ. I want to call myself a Christian. I, you know, it's like, I don't want to be emphasizing the doctrinal points above the gospel, but then I also will circle back and go, but without the doctrinal points, you're preaching a false, a false gospel. And so yeah. I, I circle That's back right. and forth. I don't, I don't want to be too cage stagey. I mean, I, 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 I've been there and I've tried to, to, to not be, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a well, tradition only- that I find to be very valuable. There there are even parts of of the tradition that that I still struggle with, although they're not unique to Reformed theology. Like I had talked to you before, how I I struggle with the tradition of infant baptism, but that mm-hmm. that really goes back way before you know the the the, the Reformation. So, but yeah. but I do I do find that you know I I think the most important thing is just a the view of Scripture being the the ultimate authority which i i think is almost you know that's something that i find to be the most important because man there's a lot of christians running around today uh who who undermine the the legitimacy and the authority of scripture and i'm just like man i mean if we undermine that we're basically it'd be like if i took a saw and and was while we're having this conversation was sawing the legs off on my chair <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. it's like without that yeah. What do, what do we have? And now that then you have the Catholics and the Orthodox, you would say, well, you have the church and the church is the ultimate authority. Um, but right. it's just like, yeah. how do you know which, how do you know which church is the right church? You know, I mean, cause there's right. different denominations. <laughs> which one do you view as the final authority? And it's just like, well, you have to go back to scripture. You have to figure out which one is professing uh, a, a doctrine and a tradition that is consistent with scripture. That's my argument to them. Um, yeah. So I think in uh, relationships um, with Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox believers, um, there's, you know, we have some common ground, but uh, happily they do profess to, to accept the scripture as uh, an authority. And so while they're going to be hobbled, uh, crippled a bit by, you know, how they filter their interpretation of scripture, um, that's something we can appeal to. And with uh, quote unquote Protestants, uh, you know, those of the, modernist, I would call it, or quote-unquote liberal uh, interpretation of scripture that really undermines the uh, inerrancy and infallibility and authority of scripture. Uh, yeah, that's, it's harder to work with, but um, 
you know, the, the position itself is one thing. And then kind of this, uh, uh, personal apologetic conversation with other people we know is the dynamics of that. That's, that's another thing, you know, how, how do we communicate the position best and, um, well, and, and interact also, with them in a persuasive manner. Yeah. And, it, and it's also about like, it's, you know, we only have so much time to expend here while we're on this earth. And I mean, just in the, in the pro con cost analysis of every decision and conversation we have, uh, I find myself like my, my nature wants me to make, Christian anarchism, the mantra, no king but Christ, a big tent where Christians mm-hmm. of all traditions and faiths can come under and, uh, you know, maybe, you know, agree to disagree on these areas of doctrine, but agree on the core, you know, the ultimate core belief of Christianity, which is the re- resurrection of Christ and the the rightful uh proclamation as of, of christ as king and of as god as the ultimate authority the only legitimate authority and the rejection of uh evil human authority uh and the state and yeah and and that's where my heart is and so i try not to uh you know stir up too much argument among christians but i have run into some you know, it, it's tough because I, I have friends who are maybe more towards the hyper-Calvinist side who, you know, their their stances would be that, oh, well, their theology is damning. And, and I'm not as – I'm not as uh, sure and certain in, in my beliefs to be able to say that or to even say, like, if I was very certain in my beliefs that I think that a, a lack of these particular doctrinal points – are damning. I mean, I do think there are points of doctrine that do become damning when they deny the core. I mean, you know, this, this becomes really tough when I, I think more when you're dealing with the, what is commonly referred to as like the cult breakoffs of, of Christianity, uh, sure. mainly being the Latter-day Saints and Jehovah witness. And, and, and that's tough. Cause I, I also do have, there are Christian anarchists I know from both of those, uh, yeah churches as well. And so it's tough. It's like, I don't want to, you know, my page, my podcast, it is ultimately about Christian anarchism um, primarily. And I'm not a theologian, so I don't really do a whole lot of reformed focused content, but uh, us being both of the same uh, theological tradition, I kind of wanted to, you know, kind of hear your thoughts on that in terms of how we, how we approach this, movement that is in my opinion actually picking up some steam i mean definitely still a minority and not a loud voice in in the church or in the culture but i mean i think it's it's picking up steam and and one could envision this you know especially as our politics become more and more toxic uh one mm-hmm. could hope and pray that more and more christians start to reject that and start looking elsewhere to see what, what other Christians do in regards to politics. And, yeah. uh, you know, I definitely want to be a big tent as much as possible, but, uh, you know, I, I also want to, I don't want to be so open and welcoming that, uh, I let maybe 
ideas in or people in with with certain beliefs that might be detrimental not to the no king but christ mantra but to uh but to matters of of salvation and and knowing god and knowing the truth what's your take on that yeah um i think the tension that you're feeling about how broad tent or big tent to be uh is is a legitimate one but uh i think you can um understand the relationship of your position to other people with um sympathetic positions on different points in a way that you can work together with people where you have agreement and not let your disagreements uh, compromise uh, your principled stand on where you disagree. So um, while one of my interests as a reformed libertarian anarchist is not only to help other reformed libertarians become reformed anarchists, but um, to help reform people become who aren't even libertarians to become, to adopt, uh, to understand libertarian anarchism and to help uh, other libertarian anarchists whether Christian or not, to become reformed, right? So I, I, I want them to see that uh, relationship. <clears throat> and uh, there's an idea, actually, I, I first uh, became aware of it through Fran- Francis Schaeffer called co-belligerency. And this is an alternative uh, idea to, or perhaps a parallel idea to the, to that of uh, being an ally. So, um, when someone is the enemy of my enemy <laughs> on a point on some part- particular issue, right? Uh, that might not make them my friend. And so that, that's the tension you're feeling. Uh, you're like, here are these people also oppose the state but maybe they do so from a position that fundamentally we're not coming from the same place on why we oppose the state or what have you. Um, And so that idea of someone from another perspective, someone from a position that you might fundamentally even disagree with, and yet they're opposing the same thing that you oppose and you're like, what relationship can I sustain to these other people that are doing good things insofar as they're opposing bad things that I oppose? <laughs> um, that's called co-belligerency. So the belligerency sounds like uh, something bad, maybe, you know, being belligerent, but it just means y- you um, oppose the same things. And um, in some ways with libertarians, whatever perspective they come from, or even closer than co-belligerents, you know, because what is defining of uh, principled libertarianism is the uh, acceptance of self-ownership and its 
sort of like coin flip side uh, uh, obligatory notion of the non-aggression principle. So uh, belief in self-ownership and the non-aggression principle, and of course self-ownership um, coordinates with property rights, so it's not exclusive it's not exclusive of that, but um, that that's what's defining of libertarianism. And even utilitarians such as uh, David Friedman, who doesn't really accept the non-aggression principle, but is so excellent and helpful in so many ways, uh, he, he, he receives... Um, He's sort of a consequentialist in terms of his acceptance of the things we accept um, from the starting point of principles. In any case, um, we can be co-belligerents with these people, um, even if they're not Christians. Sure. And and it's, it's it's similar to how, you know, if we did reach a stateless society, we would have to. Uh, reconcile with the fact that uh under a stateless society people of different uh economic cultural and religious affiliations uh would be free to associate and disassociate and to uh band together in different areas this is sometimes referred to as as panarchy um but just the idea that uh when we talk about anarchism in a stateless society uh you know, it's not like the entire world would become in Pakistan. You'd probably have some areas and communities that uh, maybe it would not be socialism, but it might resemble something more like mutualism or some kind of, uh, you know, not not hunter gatherer, but some kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, anarcho syndicalism. You know, where you have these 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 groups of people coming together, living together, whatnot. And, and then you'd have other areas that behaved more in a capitalist property rights and, and, and free trade kind of uh, atmosphere. Um, and not just within Christianity do we have to do this, but in the libertarian world, we have to do this. We try to uh, find common ground with those that might have different uh, you know, perspectives, so long as at the end of the day, they're not trying to force their perspectives via the state. And I think that's what uh, can help to soften these disagreements among different Christian traditions is the fact that we at least all agree that even though we might not have the same uh, doctrines, that no one wants to force the other one to adopt their doctrine via the state or aggression. Uh, we all reject that. And we want to be free to uh, we, we want to be free to work out our differences and to seek unity as the body of Christ without having to fear the coercive forces of, of the state working against us. Um, so I, yeah. I think that can be, I think that can be a uniting principle and um, that is kind of where I, I like to push it. Uh, but, but, you know, there, there are, like you said, some differences in how we come to anarchism among not just different people of different uh, economic or political backgrounds, but of different theological backgrounds. Um, yeah. I mean, the Christian anarchists who come from more of the progressive Christianity side 
they really like to push uh, an, uh, an anarchism that is founded maybe not so much on, on self-ownership and the non-aggression principle more traditionally, but kind of just more on this idea of, of uh, grace and, and, and freedom that kind of also is uh, found in their theology where they kind of feel like, you know, a lot of these progressive branches reject the, the Old Testament as being um, at least entire, you know, what's the word, um, uh, inerrant or historical. They, they would say uh-huh. those things were just myths and stories, um, and, and they approach the Bible kind of wanting to emphasize human freedom, and, and uh, that's where they come from. Uh, whereas, you know, the Reformed tradition, we probably more emphasize God's freedom than, than, hu- hu- than uh, human freedom. That was actually one of the uh, one of one of the uh, gateways to reformed theology for me was reading uh, uh, James White, uh, the Potter's Freedom. Yeah, um, because uh, someone someone recommended it to me when I a Calvinist I was arguing with recommended it to me because um, he said I was making a lot of arguments that James White uh, addressed in that in that which was really at first like a, a series of books or or responses I think, but then he compiled them together. But, um, but yeah. the, uh, yeah, so th- there are differences right. in how we, we come to libertarianism, but let's focus on how, you know, what, what you think the reformed entryway into libertarianism and anarchism is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know some people on the surface would try to make the accusation that, uh, you know, Calvinism and, and, and these, the, the beliefs of, of predestination and stuff. It's like, well, if you believe in that, how can you believe in, in libertarianism and, and, and freedom as being valuable? You know, those things sound on the surface to some people as if they are uh, contradictory. Um, but I think, I think where we're coming from is kind of taking the moral principles of the Bible and universalizing them is, is kind of what I'm, you know, would, would loosely say is kind of where you and I try to come at this. So what, what would be your, uh, kind of broad, you know, big picture view, you know, if you're talking to someone who is a, a fellow reformed Christian to tell them the most consistent view of the state within reformed theology is a rejection of the state because it violates uh, the moral law of God. Well, I wanted to uh, comment when you said um, you're talking about these uh, different perspectives from which even within Christianity, uh, different confessional traditions, you could say, uh, approach the issue. And yes, I think the quote unquote Anabaptist or Anabaptistic, uh, some of them are basically approaching it from a pacifist, uh, understanding, uh, while some of that exists among uh, not the staff so much, but uh, perhaps followers of LCI, uh, the Libertarian Christian Institute, which I'm very much in support of. Um, In any case, uh, even among uh, reformed believers who are libertarians, it's not... (laughs) Uh, we're not even there, there's not even uh, a, a unified view. So that's just to say that uh, 
even among fellow reformed libertarians, um, these are things that we're still talking about and that's okay. So, uh, in my philosophical study and, uh, before, even before I became libertarian, uh, I, well, I guess following my interest in Francis Schaeffer, I was then uh, introduced to the uh, writing, the work of uh, Cornelius Van Til of Westminster Theological Seminary, Philadelphia. And one of the influences on him, besides the uh, old Princetonians, as they were called, um, Hodge and Moorfield and so on was, uh, the Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper. And so I, I find, uh, a Kuyperian perspective or neo-Calvinist not to be confused with new Calvinists, um, of the Piper, <laughs> uh, school, but, um, neo-Calvinism as Kuyperianism, that was also a, a real uh, influence on me. And in any case, uh, I, I just mentioned, I, 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 you know, name drop <laughs> throughout all these names so that people who are interested in looking into this might, um, uh, you know, have a reference to go to. <clears throat> I'll send you some links on that, on Abraham Kuyper. But in any case, one of his emphases uh, being the implications of the sovereignty of God for all of life. So not just the church and the church's confess, uh, confession of faith or even theology, but also uh, politics and the whole spectrum of cultural endeavor that one of the interesting things about uh, professing the absolute sovereignty of God is that it relativizes, in a way, all human authority. And so if uh, any non-Calvinists or even non-Christian libertarians um, sort of balk at the idea of uh, Calvinistic uh, anarchism, you know, I, th I think uh, familiarizing themselves uh, with what it is that we actually believe and teach would be helpful. Um, and this idea that because God is God and has ultimate sovereign authority, no human authority uh, can be properly or normatively um, total or absolute in the way that the state basically claims for itself uh, and uh, tyrannies have claimed for themselves throughout history. 
So I think that's one way into it. That's one way to uh, sort of get a big picture, reformed understanding of uh, libertarian anarchism and the perspective uh, that that offers. Of course, I think that's also something available to even non-reformed Christians um, that they could understand it in those terms. You know, that's a pretty simple idea. It doesn't necessarily commit them to sure. <laughs> rejecting, sure, their, yeah. rejecting right. their non-reformedism or, or, or <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't mean they have to sign up for the uh, canons of Dort or anything. They but can remain case, apostate. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, I kid, I kid. I'm not trying to attack anybody. It's just a, well, the, yeah. the other, um, <laughs> The other way into it, or not, not, not a d- different way into it, not um, anything apart from that, but additionally, I'd say, is uh, a reformed understanding of Romans 13. So not all reformed people have followed this idea, but I really, I think it's the best, and uh, it's been the historically... Uh, yeah, let's let's majority, just let, majority opinion. Yeah, but we should and, yeah definitely do Romans thirteen because that's the you, big. You want to jump into that already? Well, it's it, it's uh it's the boogeyman. I mean, you can't go five mm-hmm. minutes into a conversation. I mean, literally, not not five minutes. I during the election cycle, um, like the the voting, I was, you know, heavy on Facebook talking to people, and when they found out I was an anarchist, I mean. If it wasn't the very comment after I said I was an anarchist, it was within two or three comments, Romans 13. I mean, it's <laughs> it, it's just like clockwork because uh-huh. it, it really is the only – I think it's the only scripture that like really makes a clear declaration of like, hey, here is a view you should – or a behavior you should have towards state and authority. Um, not that, I'm not saying it's the only one, but it's one of the most – very yeah. clear and, and lengthy passages that deals right. with how well, we New Testament passage. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you, it's, it's like, I, 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 sometimes I hate to have to start there, but it's like, it, you might as well, it, it needs to be, it needs to be addressed because, you know, and I've said this before, I kind of take a multi-tiered approach to Romans 13 because I've heard at least half a dozen or maybe a dozen different takes on it. And to me, it's just like, well, at the end of the day, any of these takes, seem to be more comprehensible with a, a taking the Bible as a whole. Cause it's like, you can't, I always tell my people who bring it up. It's like, does your worldview and your philosophy start with Romans 13 or does it take the entirety of scripture? Cause it's like, yeah. you know, uh, this, this one Christian podcaster I, I listened to and I can't, I can't remember his name. He had this really, he, he had this principle that he used that I thought was interesting and is a, probably a good one to use in most cases, which is like when you come across a scripture that is kind of hard and seems to be contradictory to other verses, it's like, well, look at this verse and compare it to the entirety of scripture. And is it, is it that the entirety of the Bible is, is uh, in favor of the scripture? Like there's a bunch of supporting passages and just a few that are outliers, or is this one, you know, uh, in, in major conflict. And that should make you think, uh, maybe I need to 
dig a little bit deeper into this to figure out what it's actually talking about. And Romans 13, if you take it to mean, oh, well, we're uh, ordered to obey the state and to view the state as a moral good in all cases, I'm like, to me, that's not comprehensible with the entirety of the Bible. I mean, you mm-hmm. have literal you have literal instances of people not, <laughs> if Romans 13 means always obey the state, you have literal instances in the Bible of people not obeying the state. So that seems to be, you know, that's what my page is named after, Daniel 3, which is, you know, uh, uh, Meshach, Radshach, and Abednego. And then later you have Daniel. I mean, those are com- some of the more commonly known ones, but there's plenty of other times where people disobeyed human rulers. And uh, and then logically, it just doesn't make sense because then you have to affirm crazy things. And I've seen Christians do that too, where you say, well, okay, Romans 13 says obey the state. So uh, you're in Nazi Germany. Uh, you're you're part of the uh, the police force. Are you rounding up the Jews and taking them to the extermination camps? And some people without blinking, they just, yes, that's what you're supposed to do as a good Christian. It's like... <laughs> Right. Uh, it's like I, I just. Well, you know what's interesting? Um, the uh, uh, I'll I'll just continue to use uh, this this way of categorizing the viewpoint as a uh, modernist, uh, even though it might be postmodernist in some ways, uh, liberal theological view. They don't actually feel the pressure, uh, so to speak to view the scriptures in any way as uh as unified so so they exactly uh, because they don't actually think the scriptures are the very words of god uh infallibly and inerrantly um spoken by the words of men directed by the Holy Spirit because they they reject that doctrine they can come up with other theories about how their position is somehow in keeping with the general movement uh, I, for, I forget what they call it but there is actually sort of this theory of you know there's just sort of a tendency or direction of Christian ideas so that makes their ideas Christian when they promote this that or the other well you know, that's just, um, that's all very nice if they end up affirming things that we think are true, but, uh, when they end up affirming, uh, heresies and, uh, supporting immorality, uh, well, you know, it's just, it's, it's whatever's in their head. So, you know, we can't, we we have to speak to our fellow quote-unquote Christian uh, libertarians and rebuke them (laughs) for not submitting to the Word of God. And submitting to the Word of God uh, to its inerrancy and uh, full authority means that uh, God is the author of Scripture and Scripture is therefore unity. He's the ultimate author of Scripture. Uh, We're not denying human agency, of course. So in any case, um, right, in that context, um, that, that helps with an understanding of what Romans 13 uh, is saying, what Paul is saying in Romans 13. However, uh, 
there are two. I think I can hit uh, the main idea perhaps in two points. I should have written them down because they had occurred to me, but now they're slipping in my mind. Let me see if I can remember them as I talk about it. Uh, one is the uh, understanding of ordained as either providential or uh, prescriptive, basically, uh, moral or normative. <coughs> and um, oh, there was something else you said that made me think about it, but now, um, hmm. in any case, maybe, maybe the second, the second thing that's like a interpretive conflict will come back to me. But the, the, the main idea, uh, is that if someone, oh yeah, the other, the other thing is, um, where disobedience is allowed, right? Right, right. Uh, the issue of, is it only in the case of when sin is required? Right. Those That's kind two of the more... points, those two points, your position on those two points uh, are fundamentally going to uh, frame how you understand this passage. And the Reformed position is this, that... Uh, when it says that all must uh, submit to the powers that be um, because they are ordained by God, uh, some will immediately think um, what this is saying is God's providential ordination. That is whatever actually occurs. So whoever's claiming de facto claiming power is who it's referring to. And that's wrong. <laughs> it, it, obviously it's quite easy to read it that way on the surface, but that's very explicitly not what it's saying. Rather it's saying that which God ordains is that to which you must submit and that which god ordains is not just any tyrant or schmo who is the biggest bully on the block claiming he has the right to boss you around that's insane (laughs) but that's what people think and of course they get in all sorts of problems no the text itself is very specific and it gets into what is it that god's ordaining and it is, uh, as we've come to summarize uh, the number of phrases in the verse about for, uh, minister of God for your good, uh, punishing the evildoer, uh, rewarding those who do good, um, using the sword uh, against those who do wrong. That means the administration of civil justice, right? According to the norm of of civil justice. So that's what God ordains, and therefore our submission to what God ordains is circumscribed by that, and therefore it's not just the requirement uh, to sin that we need to um, uh, refuse, 
such as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, and you know, I should memorize their Hebrew names because those are actually their Babylonian names. But uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's, that's, I, I never remember their Hebrew names. But anyway, uh, Daniel at least is the Hebrew name. What was right. da- see? We always forget Daniel's um, uh, Babylonian name. It's something. Something close to Belteshazzar or something like that. Right. right. Anyway, okay. Uh, so that's total rabbit trail. Um, uh, so it's not just the requirement to sin, some immoral command, some command to do something immoral. Uh, you know, that's never binding in in any case, anywhere, at any time. But the um when someone doesn't have the authority the authority to require what they're requiring, even if what they're requiring is otherwise something that could be required of you uh, in some other context by someone else or something like that. So, for example, if my school teacher, uh, you know, let's, you know, say I'm not even going to a government school, but, uh, you know, school, my parents uh, are conscionably uh, sending me to that's not a government school. And uh, I have a teacher and they say, uh, from now on, every school night, uh, you have to go to bed at 7.30 or what have you. Well, am I obliged? Am I morally obliged by that command of my school teacher uh, to, to make that my bedtime? Well, you would say, you could say, well, uh, only if your parents agree or, you know, whatever. You can get all, all sorts of um, confusing <laughs> uh, calculus about it. Uh, it's very simple. Um, that bedtimes are not something over which school teachers have uh, authoritative competence to command you in. So this this also this also comes from uh, Abraham Kuyper's uh, what he called the idea of societal sphere sovereignty. So sphere sovereignty. Uh, and basically, and I, re- I wrote a paper on uh, a philosopher named Herman Doiverd and his refinement of that idea. In any case, um, this idea comes out of the Reformed tradition, reflection within theology and on the nature of political authority in relation to the church. And... Uh, the, the point is, is that God has established uh, different distinct realms, you could say, or spheres is, is the term of um, human activity and uh, human responsibility and uh, competence and authority. And so to know where those lines are so to speak and what belongs to what and who can tell you what 
is the important thing. And uh, when the civil government and let's say civil governance, even legitimately, and this will get into, I think, maybe some further questions that you have um, on the question of archism in general. Um, when those acting according to God's ordinance uh, in the administration of civil justice, okay, if they were to, if someone doing that with that office or in that position, if, if they were to require something outside their authority to require, it doesn't mean that what they're requiring is the sin. It just means they, they're not delegated from God that responsibility. So especially as states have, let's say, something seemingly innocuous like you can't cut hair without a license <laughs> right and that's for uh -huh. real they throw people in jail for that they ruin uh, people's lives i i they I, use coercion they initiate yeah. coercive force aggression against people trying to feed their children etc cetera, etc cetera. it's a moral enormity that the state does this and it should be rejected by everyone. So occupational licensing is not the God-given authority of anyone. Uh, and so as Christians, it is not obligatory on us. We're free to ignore it, and we should. And, uh, you know, you can't collect rainwater on your own property. Sorry. You know. You can ignore Caesar if he tells you that. That's not he doesn't have authority to say that. Right. Any more than your, you know, kindergarten teacher has the authority to enforce your bedtime. And, you know, Christians need to wake up. <laughs> yeah. And realize now, if I'm if I'm in a dark alley in the middle of the inner city at night and no one's around someone approaches me puts a gun to my head <laughs> and says your you know your wallet or your life i might give him my wallet but i don't owe it to him right and if i can avoid you know if i've got six hundred dollars in my sock and 20 in my wallet i don't have to tell him about the six hundred dollars in my sock <laughs> um i can give him my wallet and walk away with my life and uh everything's peachy but uh, for Christians to assume that they owe that to the mugger, uh, they're, they're doing that with the state. They think they owe to the state whatever the state requires, and they're wrong if it's not a matter of the requirements of civil justice. And so this, this is our good news. <clears throat> this is a liberation for Reformed Christians to understand what the ordinance of God is, what has God ordained, and, and, and what are we obligated to submit to? I'm very sure. I feel very enthusiastic about it. So, so diving diving into the text to maybe exegete sure. it just a, a little bit. Not we're not going to go line by line over the whole thing because God, we don't have that much time. But uh, one key word just in the first line when uh, let every person be subject to the governing authorities in, in the original Greek. Uh, it's the word there that's being used and 
I might not be pronouncing it right, uh, but I believe it's uh, the exousia uh, mm-hmm. is what's being referred to as the higher powers. Um, yeah, it's got that word hyper in front of it or hoopo or something. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The higher powers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Because yep. it's, yeah, hyper, I, I can't pronounce, I don't speak exousia, Greek. Exousia, I think exousia. Yeah, right. hyper exousia, exousia. Yeah, being above and then to the authorities is what the Greek text analysis in front of me says but mm-hmm. um would you say that what's being referred to there when we're talking about the exousia is the the ultimate authority of god in terms of the the, the moral decrees of what is right and wrong or what do you think is being directly referenced there as far as what the the higher powers are i feel like that's kind of where we have to i think paul I think Paul specifies exactly what he's talking about. There should be no question that it is uh, the power of human beings to wield the sword, uh, which of course is literal and symbolic (laughs) of uh, coercive force. And and you're getting that later when it says that they don't bear the sword in vain. Yeah. 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 That's exactly what he's talking about. So, uh, and and this is this is um, how can we be certain of this? Is through what you referenced, the technical theological terms, the analogy of scripture, scripture interpreting scripture. We can just see Paul's uh, flow of thought in that very passage that he doesn't suddenly change the subject. You know. Um, right. The, the sword is not actually okay. There's also some people who say, well, this is all about church authority. The sword is um, the word of God. And, you know, I appreciate some of my one of my favorite um, uh, political philosophers and philosophers in general, uh, uh, Jared Casey, who wrote the book uh, Libertarian Anarchy, which I recommend to everyone. Uh, yeah, he 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 takes the ecclesiast uh, ecclesial view of Romans thirteen. I just disagree with that. <clears throat> I, I I think there's no uh, that causes us a lot more problems than a straightforward understanding of this being God's ordinance of uh, the administration of civil justice through uh, the use of coercion. So right, right, and basically this coming from you know. God made it pretty clear, you know, that the non-aggression principle is almost explicitly stated in just the original Ten Commandments. I mean, do not murder, do not steal. You know, we would go a little bit beyond that to say, don't break contract, you know, don't sure. don't uh, don't violate property rights, which is also, uh, you know, a, a principle that we can derive from 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 the Bible and that. So what you would say, I'm trying to like make restate it in my own words to make sure I'm understanding it correctly. Well, and we also we also have it in, uh, gosh, I think it's chapter nine of Genesis. So in any case, when sure, yeah, the uh, uh, well, the the uh, lex talionis, um, when from God's very lips that uh, the man who sheds the blood of a man, so a murderer. By man shall his blood be shed. That, 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 that's what Paul has in mind. Right. So, and so it's the authorization given by God uh, 
to execute civil justice. Sure. Um, I guess the pushback from some Christian anarchists would be the ones that are that that would adhere to Christian pacifism because they they feel as though based upon the Sermon on the Mount and other passages. Actually, I think this is this is even somewhat talked about in Romans twelve, preceding Romans thirteen. You know, the idea of uh, do not resist evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Turn the other cheek, um, as as Jesus said it. Uh, the, the the Christian pacifist community interprets that to mean that uh, any use of force, not you know, they, they're with us as far as the initiation, the first use of force is immoral. But they would even say that uh, any kind of force used to stop aggression is is also uh, barred. Um, yeah. And to me, it's like, well, then. You know, basically, that seems to be a, a very self-defeating philosophy where you just let evil run amok and there's no consequences, which I don't think is bringing glory to God or what Jesus was. To me, I think it's a, a twisting of what Jesus was talking about on the Sermon of the Mount. You know, he said, turn the other cheek, not roll over and, and die. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think he's talking more about, you know, people who are uh, your enemy in the sense of like, uh, a bully at school or like a, a competitor in business or someone who who talks bad about you to other people who insults you or even you know maybe directly like is trying to goad you into a fight or is trying to uh say something disparaging about you or is uh you know i mean i'm trying to think of like modern set a modern example like uh you know if someone comes up and says something bad about your mother, you know, it's like, uh, you know, uh, things of personal pride, things of, uh, insult, you know, maybe even to some extent, uh, you know, things of, of, of like debt, if someone owes you something and they haven't made good, uh, I think Jesus is telling us to turn the other cheek in, in these scenarios where, uh, you know, sure. We, we could probably justify on some level, retaliation to those instances but um they're either not actual violations of of like the non-aggression principle or they're trivial ones that we can bear and that we can accomplish more good by bearing and forgiving than by retaliating in that you know because jesus uh, referenced eye for an eye and I, I do think as christians we should try not to live eye for an eye in, in all instances, we should seek to be forgiving where we can, but we also have to, I think, um, have some sort of civil governance, some sort of arbitration of, uh, you know, some, some, some sort of response to people who commit aggression and evil, otherwise evil and aggression go unchecked. Uh, I would well, say. Well, when the local cop, uh, pulls me over, slaps, six citations on me or something like this right mm -hmm. and because uh innocent until proven guilty is a joke um and i have to pay uh thousands of dollars for you know what effectively is um <clears throat> you know being uh the unlucky person, you know, at the end of, uh, revenue gathering, right. 
So I know the cop's name. And I could look him up in the white pages of this relatively small town. And I could set his house on fire. Or I could slash his tires. Or I could, you know, I could kill him. <laughs> right? So um, there's plenty of uh, real life uh, vi or I could hate him. <laughs> There's plenty of real life violation of uh, this principle that I could do that, you know, um, that I'm commanded by Jesus not to do. Right. That's what that means. When the cop pulls you over for nothing and is getting his revenue for the state, you don't plot evil in, against him in return. He's committing evil against you, you know, and it, it's God's vengeance that we leave it up to, not our, you know, likely disproportionate, <laughs> you know, right. um, you know, whose money is this man stealing? Uh, this this servant of of wickedness and evil, whose money is he stealing? Is it against me that he's offending? No, he he he's attacking God's servant, so he's offending God. He's stealing from God when he pulls me over to you know when this agent of the beast of Satan himself takes my property, throws me in jail, you know. Right. Uh, it commits aggression against me. I don't seek vengeance against him personally. Right. Uh, so like Paul, can I uh, defend myself and say, hey, do you really want to, um, you know, whip a Roman citizen? I think that might get you into some trouble. Hey, if that works. Awesome. Uh whatever so um like i guess the, like the pacifist the pacifist is up against the clear teaching of romans 13 and the prohibitions against um taking personal vengeance against those who commit evil uh against us don't uh yeah, I mean, I think there's a difference between taking vengeance because you feel personally wronged, you were hurt, and you want to hurt back versus, I think, self-defense, the defense of others, and the the execution of civil governance are really right. just forms of loving your neighbor. Because exactly if you love right. your neighbor, you don't want to see them be harmed by unchecked uh, uh, violations of of property rights or, or, you know, violence and other forms of aggression. Yeah. You can't and love your neighbor and, and sit by and go, Oh, that's, you know, you're, you're, you call your friend up and you're like, ah, there's someone breaking into my house and you live like two houses away, come over and help. You go, I'm so sorry, man. I'll, I'll pray for you. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's uh, be warm and well fed and send them away. That's what Jesus right. said. Don't do. Cause that's me. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, exactly. Uh, 
Yeah, and that that that's Paul's point in Romans thirteen that in right. light of what he said uh, previously in the book, um, to seek to live at peace, to not take vengeance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. That's right. Right. <clears throat> in light of that, <clears throat> people might <clears throat> people would look at the state and the empire and be like civil government's just evil. But so Paul's clarifying in Romans 13 that it's not civil governance as such, right? <clears throat> it's not the uh, adjudication of civil justice that's a problem. Right. And this is not this the really, use of coercion. It's not the use of sword power that it's, is itself evil. It's, it's people that would take a monopoly of those things and that, wouldn't actually because Romans 13 doesn't justify punishing good and rewarding evil. It says that it is a terror to those who do evil, but those who do good have nothing to fear. So the minute that, you know, the minute, uh, I think I heard you say this in one of your, the, the things you sent me to listen to beforehand, the minute, whatever we're talking about, the entity is punishing good and rewarding evil. Uh, it's not sanctioned or protected by Romans 13. It's not carrying out what we would call civil governance or, right. you know, or, or enforcing <laughs> the moral law of God. The only, the only, to me, this seems like the most consistent take on Romans 13 I've heard. And the only like pushback, uh, the, the one pushback I had was, you know, where some Christians would say pass as, you know, they're pacifists and Christians should not wield the sword. And I think we've addressed that. The other slight, pushback is more just wanting to hear your thoughts on it because the the actual for, uh, Greek words used in Romans 13 3 when it says the rulers are not a terror the the word they're translating from to get rulers is basically uh our archontes if that's the way you pronounce it which is where we would get you know archists from which is what you know if you're an anarchist you're against anarchists you want no archists archists are rulers so that's a proper translation um but it's saying that the rulers are a tariff to uh, are not a terror to good but uh of uh, but to but to, they're, they're not a terror to, to good works but to evil and do you desire not to fear the authority uh the good uh, sorry, the, when you're trying to read things in the exact Greek way, it makes no sense because the chromatic structure <laughs> is so different than ours. It's it's backwards. So, but yeah, just um, what what would be your your response to that? Because some people might try to you know make this a gotcha moment, like ah, oh, here it says archists. So archists means rulers, which means you have to be okay with people who have, you know, I mean, how would you define ruler other than like someone who has the right to uh, you know, tell other people, uh, I guess what to do, you know, it's, it's kind of like this monopoly of, of force, or it would be like a slave master of sorts. I mean, I don't know how else you could construe that, but what would be your response to that? Well, I think, um, <clears throat> the important thing to understand is that while the history of a term, uh, is not irrelevant. Um, uh, we use the word anarchism uh, very specifically defined 
and we mean opposition to a monopolization of the functions of civil governance. And that's not in opposition to civil governance as such. That is the administration of civil justice according to the norms, the God-ordained norms of civil justice. And, uh, you know, uh, the idea of anarchism as opposition to hierarchy or opposition to authority or rulers as such is not not our position. No, someone could say, well, you know, anarchism has this uh, promotion of chaos and promoting uh, aggression and violence uh, connotation. And we'll say, well, <clears throat> yeah, every, every term comes with its own baggage. You know, Calvinism is sorely misunderstood uh, as a term. Um, people might think it means uh, God is a tyrant or something. And, you know, that's not what, that's not what we mean by it. So, you know, we're not going to, if, if we try to stop using every term that anybody anywhere ever misunderstood, we couldn't say anything. So, right. We're and just going to make it, clear what we mean and what sure. we mean by our position, uh, is not opposition to rulers, because we believe in rulers, uh, authorities in the church, uh, human authority, even not, uh, so Jesus is head of the church and he has, uh, appointed, uh, men to be elders and, uh, pastors and, uh, you know, there are other biblical words for these offices. So, so these basically we're, we're getting into like a semantic uh, or, or the, the colloquial use of the word rulers in our culture might have baggage on it that wasn't necessarily around when Paul was writing down that word. Yeah, um, or even it could have had some ambiguity with Paul. Um, you know, no, I, I'm, I'm almost certain it, it – it 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 did that there was rulers in the sense of bad rulers and there's rulers in the sense of legitimate uh rulers and you know you have to know by the context when he's, right and we would say that what's bad is bad rulers and not good rulers just like to you know take take it like metaphorically speaking an actual ruler like you know the wooden rulers you have one that is actually correct and has exactly 12 inches and it's flat versus one made in, you know, uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan or whatever. And it's like, Oh, this is, you, you actually measure it. Like, Oh, this one's like 11 and a half inches and it's got a slight bend to it. And the, the numbers are printed wrong. You know, it counts like one, two, four, six. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's right. like, exactly. it's like, so it's like, well, that's a bad ruler. You don't want to, you don't want to submit to, you know, the authority of a bad ruler while you're building a house. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're, if yeah. you're building it and, and really ruler just means it's like a person who would exercise the rules. The actual definition I pulled up when I Googled it here for a ruler 
is just uh, a person exercising uh, government. So it, yeah. it seems to actually fit exactly what we're talking about, which is, you know, uh, if, if someone's using the word ruler or government to mean a person who has special rights to ignore the moral law of God, then that's not what we're talking about. And that's not what Romans 13 is talking about. That's right. That, that's, that is a tyrant. But if we're talking about normal individuals, you know, who sure they might have authority, they might be in positions of authority over other people, um, or they might have positions of authority as dictated by the market or whatever. But at the end of the day, they have to adhere just as consistently to those rules and those decrees and the, and the, and the civil governance as everyone else. And all they're doing is exercising the moral, the moral laws, the, the moral decrees, the civil government. So, right. you know, I, I think I just wanted to highlight those two things because yep. other than that, I think it's a perfectly comprehensible explanation. Um, but I always like to push things to make them more clear. I always and, and to make sure that we can't be accused of trying to impose our sensitivities or our our beliefs and different worldviews onto the text. We're, we're, we're clearly deriving these things from the text itself. Um, and I think that I think this worldview I mean, I think this interpretation, this exegesis of Romans 13 is the most consistent with the entirety of the Bible, with the ethics taught in the Bible. And also that makes the most sense in terms of a workable reality, because the other ones just tend to lead to logical contradictions or to you sitting on the sideline while, you know, bad things happen and you just kind of go, well, you know, God will vengeance belongs to God, which is not a wrong thing to say, but God does often act through, you know, people, you know, we say, you know, we, we like, even as Calvinists who, you know, we will, we will make an emphasis on salvation through uh, faith alone. And yet the process by which that is brought into being is God primarily acting through people who preach the gospel (laughs) go out. And, and so um, you know, God is most glorified and, you know, he tells us when he acts through his people, um, yeah. which, you know, makes sense. I mean, heck, the Jewish people, they actually saw more than any of us can say, like the actual like like manifestations of God. I mean, they saw fire pillars of fire come down and and the the Red Sea split and food come from the sky and and they still disobeyed and they still gave into idolatry and they still rejected God. So, you know, it's, it's funny, a little bit of a tangent, but whenever I hear atheists say, well, so like a common question people will ask atheists in, in debates is like, what would it take for you to believe in God? And then the atheist responds, well, God knows what it would take. He would be able to show me all sorts of signs and wonders that would force me to believe and obey. And I'm like, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible literally starts out with like, you know, being as present in people's lives as he could be and people still rejecting him. So, you know, <laughs> take that for what it's worth. Uh, right, right. Yep. With a little tangent there. Um, so, yeah, Romans 13, it just can't, you know, and there's other interpretations out there. People are welcome to look into them, but I think it's clear that uh well we can uh put um the initial audio 
that I then, uh, from another program I was on to first talking about these things a year or so ago. Oh yeah. I'll put that in the, the and, show notes. Uh, the, the, like 20 minute reduction yeah. that ended up on Google. Uh, I would recommend people listen to that versus the, uh, I mean, it's not bad to listen to the full hour and a half podcast, but, uh, just for yeah, listening pleasure. Of, but if you want 20 minutes, right. You can even yeah. speed it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can listen to it in 15. And then, um, and then the article that basically I, from, at LCI that I, um, right. Yeah. Wrote up and, after I, the fact. and the other part of Romans 13, we didn't touch on that. Maybe we'll highlight really quickly here is just the pay to all what is owed to them taxes to whom taxes are, are owed and revenue to whom revenue is, is really just, again, a reflection of civil governance and, and just property rights, which is if you owe somebody something, pay it. That's right. You go on a toll road, pay the toll. That's uh, right. Just like Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. Um, Caesar isn't owed 30% of your income just because you make above a certain a certain threshold. He's That's just right. not. It's not whatever Caesar claims. <laughs> right. Yep. It's what actually is his property. Yeah. Yep. Or, or it's not it's not what the majority claims, because if that was true, right. you know, it's just like, you know, get 20 people in a room. One of them has $100. The rest of them only have $1. Well, the 19 people vote to take the $100 from the other person and equally distribute them. Is that moral? No. Well, it's right. if it's not moral in that situation, you know, it, one of my favorite sayings is morality doesn't change with scale, meaning like yeah. if it's wrong – between one person to another or one person to 20 or one person to 50, it's wrong. Even when you scale it up to, you know, a country of 300 million people being governed by, uh, I guess like a couple of thousand or, you know, uh, depending on how, how you want to define it. But, uh, it it doesn't matter. You know, there was no exceptions. There weren't, there weren't, there weren't these little footnotes in the 10 commandments or, or, you know, it's like, do not murder, do not steal. Well, technically if someone is democratically elected, no, it's not even, well, here's, (laughs) that is, that is a real significant part of it. And I'm, and, and there's some good, I think, uh, the video initially when we were talking about taxes and talking about the, uh, the interactive site is tax rate taxation theft uh thomas k and the bit butter uh, youtube channel and george ought to help so he, george ought to help is very good on that so a lot of people understand the uh scale thing not making a difference uh one thing i want to throw out there is that when i was talking about abraham kuyper's idea of sphere sovereignty and um differentiated responsibility um different kinds, different spheres of uh, competence and authority. Some people then say, well, it's not a matter of scale. It's just a matter of, um, you know, sure, your neighbor doesn't have the authority to uh, tax you to take your property against your consent uh, without your consent. But, and the church doesn't but and you know and the, these different societal spheres don't. But the I'm always, I'm always triggered when does. I hear the word right. I'm always triggered when I hear the word but. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like here it comes. Yeah. So, the, you know, they're, they're saying this. I'm so not calling you the, fat, but <laughs> but this is the exception. We're saying no. Nowhere, nowhere, right? Has God? So it's not a matter of scale, and it's not a matter of. Or it's not. It's not even a matter of ends justify the means. It's not a matter of. Yeah. It's not a matter of authority. Right. 
nowhere. So God has universally forbidden the initiation of coercion. That is the first use of coercion uh, against other people and their property, even by legitimate civil governance or even by civil governance. Otherwise, well, it becomes illegitimate. Right. And 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 then, you know, people will commonly bring up, well, then how do we do this and how do we do that? How do we build the roads is the common, you know, libertarian. Uh, All right. So here's joke. what I want to I want to plug the Libertarian Christian Institute uh, new book release. Um, I don't know how soon you're going to release this video, but by Monday, the 9th of November, that will probably be the last day you could get an ebook version of Faith Seeking Freedom. Uh, and if you go to faithseekingfreedom.com, but you can also just search for it on Amazon, you can get the ebook version for a buck. I think yep. tomorrow might be the last day. I already, I already got on that. <laughs> but Perfect. yeah, I, I'll try to, if I can get that, this edited and published tonight, I'll, I'll try to do that and put it out tomorrow ah, morning. Cool. Plug that. Well, who knows? In yeah, any case, but, people should still get the book. Yeah. Get the, even get if you're watching this. Copy yeah. Even because if you're that's later, 102 questions and answers dealing with some specifics with further reading suggestions for people who find this at least mildly compelling, perhaps, and want to look further into it. Let's hope they do. Yep. I agree. Um, here's the last question I have for you then. Um, why do you think, I mean, beyond Romans 13 being used as a justification, um, why do you think Christians are so entangled with politics and, and statism? Um, I mean, is it just kind of something they've inherited historically? I know I commonly like to say, I, I think the entanglement started with, with Constantine and just trickled down through but you know that's kind of like an argument from history. Why are why are Christians today so entangled with the with the state and politics, and why is it so hard? You know, it, it seems like a, a pretty basic at the end of the day, just to say no king but Christ. Do you think that would be a very persuasive argument just by itself for Christians to go? Yeah, I guess I shouldn't be this entangled with with politics and the state. Um, but but it just feels like you know, especially the last two or three months, anytime you stepped foot in a church, drove by a church and looked at what was written on the church signs, it was mm. mostly filled with with messages urging people to to go and vote. It's your civic duty. It's, you know, you know, vote. Uh, and and all the all the idolatry that comes along with that, you know, the really the really sick idolatry of 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 specific people even, not just not just because there's idolatry of like the American uh, nation, the flag, uh, American exceptionalism. Then there's idolatry of actual figures like of Donald Trump. Uh, you know, is this just a matter of like, is it as simple as people, you know, even people who profess God are just uh, always susceptible to idolatry? You know, it's always easy to end up bowing down to a golden calf without, you know, realizing how far you've gone off course or is, is there something else? What, what, what's your thoughts? Well, on that? I think that's right. I think, <clears throat> I think, uh, it is a matter of idolatry. That's, that's sort of the bottom line. Uh, <clears throat> Romans one has a lot to say about that, but as to why Christians, uh, in America don't seem 
I wouldn't say are especially uh, seduced more than anybody else, but why, why, why uh, aren't Christians known for being anti-statist in the West? And um, I think it has to do the his- with the history of Christianity in the West, which we're all fairly familiar with, but more than uh, blaming, say, Constantine, uh, I think, so here, here's my, uh, I'll call it a theory, uh, loosely. And I think that through ups and downs, just like personal sanctification, the sanctification of the people of God generation after generation can also have its ups and downs, uh, one step forward, two step back kind of, uh, dynamic. And this is all in the plan of God that, um, the gospel, the meaning of the gospel, not only as understood and professed confessionally, uh, by the church, but uh, the broader implications of Christian truth for all of life, uh, that in God's plan, there is a historical unfolding. And the development and understanding of um, what these things should mean, especially as history itself uh, develops and changes, um, is a progressive endeavor. So uh, the ultimate kingdom of God uh, will be brought by God himself in its consummate form and arrived at apart from our attaining the highest height possible of sanctification doesn't depend on that. Um, but, uh, Jesus Christ himself is, uh, purifying his bride. And, um, there is yet more light to be, uh, shed upon us more clear understanding that we can have of the scriptures, you know, and, Thank, thank God for that, that um, this is a process of, of, of sanctification. Um, right. I mean, it's, it's just, it, it, it's like going back to first Samuel. I mean, God, I think wants the church, his people to, to stop asking for a King and to ask to have him dwell among us as it was, you know, to, to restore, to, to live, you know, Jesus said, I came to restore what is lost. And part of that was, you know, what was lost in the garden and God wants to, you know, and we, we have some of that, you know, now we are reconciled with God in terms of, of, uh, our salvation, but in terms of how we then, you know, once we are saved, how we live as the church, um, I think that we have to continue to, uh, push for the, for, for the entirety of the church to embrace that, that kind of, living in that kind of pursuit of, of, of God, 
to yeah. to have him and dwell, to, to, you know, to have him dwell among us in in that very real sense, and and to stop looking to implement these these you know like like Israel did in 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 the Old Testament, you know, when they they wanted to be like everyone else and they wanted to to have an earthly king, and God warned them that wasn't going to go well. Um, yeah. And we see it 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 has never gone well, and yeah. whether that king was hereditary or uh, appointed, pulled a sword out of a stone, or <laughs> or or was elected from some sort of electoral process, it's never, uh, you know, it's never you ended know, well. I I I think that. Um, so anyway, I think our confidence in that, in having a clearer understanding of. Uh, God's intended design for civil governance is, you know, progressive. Um, I, I, th I think there's a possibility to conflate or confuse um, the re the rejection of the distortion of those things, right? About not having an earthly ruler in the old old covenant um, theocracy, uh, God was to be their ruler. And then uh, translating that into the new covenant era and then saying that's the problem with the state. Um, I, I'd wanna phrase it differently. I mean, I think you're exactly on the right track. We, we agree, but uh, some of that rhetoric about uh, no king but Christ, I think goes in the wrong direction, right? And that was some of the criticism we might have as reform people sure. against the Anabaptists and and uh, also liberal thinking. So um, it's not that Christ's kingship makes uh, civil authority or civil governance itself um, uh, out of the question, and not that it uh, makes human authority uh, just like secondary causes, right? God uses uh, human agency. It doesn't eliminate any of those things, uh, but it does put it in the right perspective. It does uh, mean limited authority is the way human authority is the only way human authority can operate. Right. And, and just like Romans functions and just like Romans governance. 13. Yeah. And just like yeah. Romans 13 says, yeah. there's no authority that is not, you know, ordained instituted by and ordained yeah. by God. So yeah. I think that really makes it makes it all cohesive and easy to, to, to understand. And it's, it's a more, it's a more comprehensible worldview than to, you know, I agree with, and, and I'm, I say this with love for my progressive Christian brothers and sisters, but I think sometimes they uh, ironically might go too far into what, like when you see some of the secular left anarchism uh, philosophy where people will say it means not just new rulers, but new rules. Um, <laughs> and that's not what Christian anarchism should be. And I feel like sometimes that can be a little bit of what separates us from, from those people, but uh, fr from the more progressive ideologies. And I can see why you want to make that distinction to be clear that we're not saying uh, no king but Christ uh, in the sense of that we're saying that there's no rule for civil governance. I think civil governance is actually the the proper 
uh, application and response we should have to a a biblical uh, view of of morality and of right and wrong and of trying to uh, to to, fo- to to live that out in 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 society uh, yeah. to because you know I mean what what's the you know if if God's rules were just meant to be followed in a eternal sense like you know just let people go around breaking the commandments unabated um you know that doesn't seem to me to be a very uh comprehensible livable worldview and that's i I don't see that anywhere in scripture but yeah that's a bit of a tangent so as we bring things to a close here um you know I'm, i'm glad with where the conversation went uh i think that we've shown that the Bible does consistently uh, bring us into a, a proper, the proper understanding of, of the state as we know it today of, of these human kingdoms is that, uh, you know, the only legitimate authority that God institutes is that which is acting in, in, in carrying out civil governance in basically, or to, to rephrase it, that is uh, acting out God's law. That is that is enforcing what is is right, not not enforcing it with evil, but just enforcing it with, um, with with just stopping people who are committing aggression, who who uh, yeah. use fir- that first initiation of, of aggression, whether it's through theft, murder, what have you, coercion, incarceration, and we and we we put an end to that. Um, yeah. And you know wh- where that some people might get uncomfortable with that in terms of the h- how that gets done, but that's that is something that is you know who people who are libertarian minded probably will be more comfortable knowing that you know having an understanding of of free market economics and you know when this stuff is kind of handled by the market, uh, it's it's handled a lot better than when the state attempts to do it because <laughs> uh, you know people it's funny when people complain about monopolies they for some reason don't recognize all the time the monopoly the ultimate monopoly that the state is in terms of uh when you don't have any competition or ways to hold the state accountable other than what you know what we have which is this once every two to four years uh circus ride that we go on where we uh have these elections um i mean there's no way to hold people accountable and they aren't subject to market forces and they try to do these things it's just it's just a bad idea um and true true the true uh and so yeah i mean uh there's we could go a lot more on this but uh you know people can check out greg's stuff on um on his uh his his web page and stuff we'll link that in the show notes also definitely you know look for that book coming out being published by the uh by lci libertarian christian institute and uh and uh yeah i think this was a great conversation did you have anything you wanted to say in closing greg yeah thanks a lot jacob um this is good good conversation uh the facebook discussion groups you know here's hoping they'll still be uh, around throughout (laughs) this year you never know right but uh in any case, if they're not accessible at some point, um, nonetheless, I'll, I'll have it posted somewhere, um, a forthcoming statement on what is reformed libertarianism and a sister statement, what is reformed anarchism. 
and uh, of course they'll be quite similar just with uh, slightly different statements on um, on the the state itself uh, the libertarianism uh, statement being minarchist as opposed to anarchist in any case uh, yeah for, for those that are just starting and then those who are six months into it in a way you know it's like <laughs> i don't it's like I don't, I don't think you have to convert through minarchism i think someone no, could no. conceivably come to you know there's no reason for that uh, necessarily but it you know and people tend to take baby steps as it were so often that's one of them but in any case uh let's see other material i'll, I'll send you i'll send you whatever i can um some of those videos we mentioned i have a playlist of videos that i think are helpful a lot of them are on the resource page for the audio that i mentioned uh and the article but in any case i'll send you some of those specific resources awesome the links yep up. yep so yeah you can check out his stuff there we'll have that posted there uh thanks again greg for for uh taking the time out of your your night uh here to to talk about this stuff um i'm hoping that it's uh, uh edifying to those watching that that uh it just helps us all in our uh efforts to to to, to draw to a, a more kingdom and biblical understanding of God and, and, and how that pertains to life here on this earth while we are here. So uh, I hope you well, God bless you in uh, all that you're doing and uh, stay safe out there. And hopefully we, uh, we uh, don't get zucked. We're going to have to make sure we have alternative ways to contact each other. It's going to be more important going forward because uh, it's true. It's a little crazy out there right now, but uh, thanks again, man. Stay safe and uh, have a good night. All right. You too. Thanks a lot. Thanks for this conversation, Jacob. It was good. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a good night. All right. You too. Talk to you later. Yep. Bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.